So the demand for an investigation into the Democrats was part of the reason that he it was ordered to withhold funding to Ukraine. The the look back to what happened in 2016 was, was part of the thing that he was worried about in corruption with that nation. And, and, withholding, and withholding the funding. Yeah, okay. which, which ultimately then flowed. I think that vote, the size of the vote, more than two to one of the Republicans voted to oppose what the president did probably got to the president uh, because he was shaken up by it. He has called the press the enemy of the American people. And I will tell you, I've fought a lot of America's enemies. The press is not the enemy of the American people. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Parts of speech are meaningful. We talk a fair amount about pronouns in the culture lately and rightly, but I want to say a word today about prepositions. On this day, when Representative Elijah Cummings of Baltimore, a masterful rhetorician in addition to a man of surpassing dignity and grace, has died. As Cummings said to Michael Cohen, as Cohen was bound for prison, when bad things happen to you, don't ask the question, why did it happen to me? Ask the question, why did it happen for me? I don't know, he said, why this is happening for you. He might have been speaking to the whole country. Why is Trump happening to us? Now, I may be showing my religious cards, but I second Cummings' choice of prepositions. Why is this happening for us? That's what we've had to think about for three years, and that's what we will continue to parse for decades to come. As listeners may know, one of the moments of testimony I've found most powerful during this catastrophic period in American history, and we've heard a lot of testimony, was Cohen's second hearing before the House Oversight Committee, which is chaired, was chaired by Congressman Cummings. As an authentic statesman, Cummings really presides over proceedings, and Republicans and Democrats alike seemed to aim to curry favor with him while fearing his impatience and formidable side-eye. Chief among the terrified that day was Representative Mark Meadows, the loud Republican from North Carolina, kind of Trump attack dog. When Cohen said in his opening statement that Trump is a racist, a cheat, and a con man, Meadows leapt in to present one of Trump's employees, a silent and young black woman, as token certification somehow of Trump's lack of racism, of his magnificent commitment to social justice. Rashida Tlaib rightly spotted this tokenism, especially trotting out of a black woman by a white man, as a racist set piece. But rather than let that factual observation stand, we all had to turn to Mark Meadows, who was affronted by this point and suddenly near tears. And that's where Cummings came in. Meadows appealed to Cummings as a friend to say, sob, that he wasn't a racist. And we know by now that white men have been hysterically seeking to discharge their pain and being caught on their victims. And Cummings was in what seemed like a tight spot. But then he did something that I now try to reproduce with my children. He didn't deny Meadows. He didn't starve him of that fellowship that Meadows so needed. But Cummings made it clear that his job is not to clear the consciences of others. It is not his job. That's Meadows' work. That will be the work of all the Trump enablers, from Bill Barr to Cohen to Gordon Sondland to Anthony Scaramucci to Ivanka Trump. 
Because, as Cummings said in his closing statements to Cohen, when we're dancing with the angels, the question will be asked in 2019, what did we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? Did we stand on the sidelines and say nothing? Did we play games? And now that Cummings himself is dancing with the angels, we can all be grateful that the son of a sharecropper, as Trump pummeled him on Twitter, never stood on the sidelines. He never played games. He fought like hell to keep our democracy intact. And now we will continue that fight for him. Rest in peace and power, Elijah Eugene Cummings. My guest today to talk about national security, foreign policy, and Trump world corruption is the great Kate Brannon. She's the editorial director of Just Security and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. Kate, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks so much for having me. I love having you in the studio. I can see you face to face. Yes, we meet. I can experience your wit in person, <laughs> not just on Twitter. So I want to talk about Gordon Sondland and his fall, which is the way we first experienced him, and then his redemption. But to get into this topic, I think, call me. Yes. As Gordon Sondland would say, right? Yes. When things get sketchy, he tries to jump off the internet. Let's then, not text. Let's not text. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> At Goldman Sachs, did you know they used to, when they were talking about junk mortgages, would say, let's discuss live LDL. <laughs> no, <I didn't. laughs> like, wait, these mortgages seem really trashy. And then the other guy would write back LDL. And then they'd run <laughs> to an alley. Um, all right. So Gordon Sondland, who said, call me, who seemed very much like he was piping in Trump's agenda to obscure the fact that this was quid pro quo, or at least a bid for interference in an American election that Trump made to President Zelensky. We're back talking about Zelensky, by the way, not Erdogan, not yet. But now Sondland has his statement, which redeems him a little bit, his statement to Congress. What'd you think of it? Right. So he is up on the Hill as we speak, testifying in the basement in a skiff to House investigators. And on the call me point, I thought it was funny. He says, you know, when I said, let's not text, call me, it's not because I was trying to hide anything Mm -mm. or not leave a written record. I just meant diplomacy is better conducted in person. It's too complicated to do over text. So we should really get on the call. These emojis are just not (laughs) capturing the nuance. Um, No. But he also talks about, so Taylor texted him and said, I really don't like this quid pro quo path we're going down, basically. Yes. And I'm paraphrasing him, which I know now is a criminal treasonous <laughs> offense. So it's I apologize. It's an Adam Schiff style. <laughs> yes. I think what he said was something like, are we saying that support is conditioned on Zelensky reopening this investigation into the Bidens? Exactly. Something like that. That's not a parody. Right. And so that's when Sondland said, uh, let's not text. Again, I'm paraphrasing. And then five hours pass, and we know because it had been reported that Sondland had picked up the phone and talked to Trump in the intervening time Mm -hmm. and then texted back, there's no quid pro quo. And so in his opening statement, he talks about this phone call he had with Trump. He says Trump repeatedly said no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo, and that Trump was in a bad mood when he had that phone call. I'm I'm saying, I mean, I'm not, uh, we don't know what happened. We're just taking this on Sondland. It doesn't sound like Trump. The bad mood and the chronic self-repetition. just, it's just not, it's unusual for him. Um, he never gets stuck on a phrase. <laughs> no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo, no collusion, all that. Yeah. So, okay, he says no quid pro quo, which is the new phrase for collusion, the thing that Trump needs to get away from himself. Right. Okay, and then Sondland says? Well, to zoom out, so that's that's just that one exchange that Sondland addresses in his opening statement. More broadly, Sondland confirms that at Trump's direction, which is really important, it was clear to Sondland that Trump wanted to delegate 
Ukraine policy to Rudy Giuliani Mm -hmm. and that all sort of Ukraine policy should go through him. And this um, disappointed and was not the preferred route for people like Sondland, Volker, who was the special envoy to Ukraine, mm-hmm. and Bill Taylor, who had become the ambassador to Ukraine after Yovanovitch was kicked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he sort of confirms that, yes, uh, and publicly, that, yes, all the Ukraine policy then had to go through Trump's personal lawyer, which was super bizarre, mm-hmm. and that this happened because Trump wanted it to, and that it was Sondland's impression that Rudy was merely conveying Trump's preferences and wishes. And so connecting that dot to Trump, I think, is important, even though to yeah. us it's obvious that if Giuliani's involved, it's because Trump wants him to. Otherwise, mm-hmm. why on earth would Giuliani be playing a role in any of this? Yep. But for Sondland to say that out loud, I think, is really important, just to connect the dots back to the president. Absolutely. I mean, doesn't this remind you of the ways that um, Michael Cohen a little bit tried to connect the dots, that he remembered Don Jr., consulting with his father upstairs in Trump Tower about the meeting that he had just proudly organized to get dirt on Hillary Clinton from a Russian lawyer from Natalia Veselnitskaya. There's something, it's like the Mueller report is, or some of the details of that are repeating themselves here. Yes. It's like, he's like a serial killer with a clear M.O. Yes. You well, know, another key part of that that comes from Cohen is Trump talks in code and, mm-hmm. you know, you know when he's saying a certain thing that it means his other thing. And so that's so obvious with this story with the corruption. Go after corruption in Ukraine. What Well, what is corruption? Apparently, the number one issue for, of corruption in Ukraine is Hunter Biden's job at the oil company mm-hmm. versus the far larger issues that if you were truly tackling corruption in Ukraine, that you would actually be interested in. Right. The American nepotism is not really their worry. And Hunter Biden did virtually nothing on the board seat. He had bigger fish to fry with his own personal problems. Correct. Anyway, so yes. And Zelensky, does he even use in that call, and I know we're going back a bit, but does he even use in the call Biden's name? I can't remember. Trump does. Okay, and so yes. another key part of this um, Sondland statement a few things. He says he was not on the July 25th call Mm -hmm. between Trump and Mm. Zelensky and that um, the versions of the call he saw Mm -hmm. didn't mention Biden, didn't even mention that Trump made a request of Zelensky. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like he saw some version of this call that was scrubbed. He also says versions of the call, which make you think, Mm. well, how many sort of loose transcripts of this call were put out there by by the White House? And also, if there's a still more scrubbed version, why did Trump release to the public one that we know is partial, but it's plenty damning? Right. And Sondland says he didn't see that transcript until we saw it when the White House released it. And so he didn't know the extent to which Trump had asked quite specifically of Zelensky to investigate the Bidens. But what Sondland leaves out of his opening statement Mm -hmm. is the Washington Post reported in a story earlier this week about the big role that Mick Mulvaney has played in all of this. Yes. That as they prepared for this July 25th phone call between Zelensky and Trump, Bolton wanted to prepare the president. Bolton could sort of see that this was like off the rails. He saw that Giuliani was playing this bizarre role in all of this and Mm -hmm. was really sort of worried about it. And so Bolton wanted to be the one to prep the president. But Mulvaney made sure that Sondland was able to prep the president as well because they were sort of running this parallel side Ukraine policy track. And so Mulvaney put Sondland through to the president and Sondland, 
on the day after the call, told a Ukrainian television station, I actually spoke to the president minutes before he got on the phone with President Zelensky. Mm -hmm. Now, in Sondland's opening statement, he goes through all of what he believes are the relevant sort of moments in this whole story, and he leaves that out, which is... Obviously, I think that the House investigators today will probably ask him about that and what was said, but it was not in his opening statement. One of the things, and I think Matt Miller dug this up, a huge use of Twitter to me is that there's so many archivists on it (laughs) that remember exactly where something appeared and they remember so quickly. Anyway, Matt Miller found in one of the early reports on Russian interference, and this is like from... I think from 20, early 2017, not the, not the Mueller report, but some other kind of uh, write-up. I'm not sure what. But he's, he found an example of um, Zhirnovsky, the far-right Russian um, politician, uh, saying, cheering Trump's victory and saying, now we get something like, now we get Ukraine and Syria. Right. Yikes. Yeah. You know, it's like the way that Trump used to say erroneously that Muslims were cheering 9-11, American Muslims, that, you know, really the very far right that has this very clear agenda around very far right in Russia, very clear agenda in getting back Ukraine, which it thinks it's owed or it's rightfully rightfully belongs to the Russian Federation, and then also getting its way in Syria. And this is payback time for Trump. I mean, as Pelosi said yesterday, all roads lead to the Kremlin with Trump. It's astonishing. National security is your beat. I mean, how has this been for you and your team at Just Security? Is it shocking? I mean, really, this is like unshockable people. (laughs) Like we're losing the Pax Americana. But worse, our president is a bad actor. He's a rogue state in himself. Yeah. Well, at Just Security, I'm sort of one of the few journalists among a lot of lawyers and a lot of former government lawyers. And I am often shocked, but also not surprised. There's that weird feeling in Trump, in the Trump era where yeah. you're like, I know as this is going to get so bad. Yes. And so when it does, you're like, oh, yep, that's what I expected. Yes. And at the same time, you're shocked by the details of it. But I find I'm often less shocked sometimes than people who, you know, worked in the Obama administration, have worked in, you know, other pre- other administrations, Bush, Obama, et cetera, a lot of, you know, career civil servants, foreign servants, defense officials are truly shocked yeah. because this isn't the way things are supposed to go. These aren't the people who are supposed to have these jobs. Yeah. And I think it really does, uh, you know, it rattles all of us, but it really rattles people who have been on the inside and I think have a better sense of how much is at stake than yes. us on the outside. One of the ways that anyone who's been in a career, especially career diplomats, um, are probably their jaws have dropped, including we know for a fact uh, Maria Yavanovich was just appalled and um, devastated by what she saw happening. So yesterday we saw the letter of Donald Trump to Recep Erdogan of Turkey that is on the one hand, beyond parody, it was so seemed so satirical that even the, you know the New York Times had to kind of triple check that this was really what the president of the United States had written to you know Erdogan, the brutal head of a autocrat, head of a theocracy. Every Turk I know is travel banned from returning to Turkey. And then Trump had this exchange with him that I don't even know what to liken it to. I don't know. What did you think when you saw that letter? Well, a few things about it. First, we know, I think it was dated from last week. Yes, that's right. And so we know it was ignored. 
Yes, because he asked for Erdogan to not be responsible for the slaughter of thousands or something by taking advantage of Trump's withdrawal of troops, right, from the border and actually rushing into Syria. Right. Yeah. It's not clear. I mean, both Trump and—or not Trump, but his administration and Republicans on the Hill are trying to draw a line that Erdogan can't cross when clearly Erdogan has already crossed the line. But I've seen discussion like, if they enter Kobani, that's it. And (laughs) they're kind of trying to create a line in the future when the line has already been crossed. But back to the letter, I thought what was so interesting was the White House released this letter to Trish Regan at Fox News, Mm -hmm. showing that this is something they're proud of. Like, this is what your president did, you know, did on this topic. He sent this letter. It's a deal maker. And I thought yesterday, the letter combined, um, Trump released this photo from his meeting with the Democrats in the White House, where Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, was standing up, pointing her finger at him. Yes. And, and he looks kind of flushed and angry. And yeah. she, while standing up and stern, doesn't look out of control. And the White House thought both the letter and that photo worked to their advantage. This is a brilliant point. Yes. And it shows how Trump has just an utter lack of self-awareness. Yes. That both of those things are so completely damning. Yes. Um, yes. And together... They just added to this feeling yesterday. He has this, you know, internal worldview that distorts reality. And every now and then he tries to supply receipts to show that he's right. And then when you see through his eyes, when you see like Pelosi, she looks as you said, dignified and stern and exactly the way we would have her in a meeting which has a general, you know, all white men, I think there's a there's you know one of the one of the aides is a woman or maybe one or two of the aides, but she's there in blue, all these men around the table, all Trump side men around the table except Schumer, and there she is, um, you know, making this clear point, and he decides to call it a meltdown. It's I mean the photo as as a woman, as uh, a critic of Trump. Yeah. I mean, the photo is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we, we that would be a like great screensaver to keep our... Well, and Nancy Pelosi made it her backdrop on her Twitter profile. Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so it shows sort of how that went down. You know what is funny about that? I don't know if you saw that this morning, but Bill Kristol put, maybe I am a feminist after all at the top of it. And then uh, this is just another sign of our times. And then George Conway retweeted that and said, maybe I'm a feminist also. Yeah. That's what it took. That's what it took for these two very right-wing men to decide, you know, forget forget Gloria Stein and forget me too. Forget they like finally saw what that looks like to be alone in a room. And now, I mean, Pelosi, I do not know how mother of five and a grandmother um, is at this crux of history and now without Elijah Cummings at her side. Well, it's interesting you mentioned her as a mother because as a mother myself, when I saw that photo, I thought— I look like that sometimes. When yes, I'm, yes. Like, pick it up yes. or you'll go to your room. Yes. You know, she, I mean, she has to do a lot of that. I mean, we finally really do have an adult in the room. Yeah. With um, her. I mean, there was a lot of zeroing in on that photo, which, as you say, Trump used as an advertisement for himself and against Pelosi. But there were some generals, very big-looking old men in the room, looking down like scolded schoolboys, you yeah. know, and that was also, I thought, a powerful effect in the photo. Well, because there's so much turnover in the administration and, and um, that a lot of people sort of walk into their job and are, are handed uh, a shit show. <laughs> or, a shit show. Yeah. So you had Joseph McGuire, the acting director oh, yes, of National right. Intelligence, who on probably day one is handed this 
um, you know, insane whistleblower complaint that yes. he has to manage. Then you've got uh, Mark Esper, who becomes the defense secretary because Patrick Shanahan's nomination implodes in his face, and he now is handed. Is that the big? Guy, that's the big guy who's decorated. I mean, oh no, so and so sad. that's um, General Mark Milley, who's the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now he he's in his job not because of just sort of out of regular rotations. Yeah. But he's brand new on the job. And so he's also walked into this. And so you could see just all of them like, can I please be somewhere else? And yeah. this is what the job entails. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, we're delaying on this a little bit, that I think the fact that guys like Millie, and I cannot believe I don't recognize <laughs> one of the Joint Chiefs. I mean, oh, he's just, brand new. so you're Right. <laughs> I know. Still, though, the fact that they're all in acting and floating positions. I mean, I was looking around for a familiar face, and I was like, that's Mattis. Oh, no, Mattis is long gone. Oh, right. And then you have Robert O'Brien, who's the new National Security Advisor. Who Does was he previously... look a little like Mattis? <laughs> Please say that. He, I actually don't even remember what he looks <laughs> like. <laughs> well, they're also quite hard to tell apart because they all really do look alike. Yeah. But also the idea that some of these guys are having to think all the moral, moral authority in the room is going to the Speaker of the House, who's a woman, like a senior citizen woman, they probably are not used to. I think that's why I was so interested in Crystal changing his mind, is that it took all this for the Democrat in the room from Congress, who, you know, these guys would usually look down on cabinet members, generals, um, to really contain all that moral authority. I mean, it seems like the pins have been pulled out of any any Trumpite position, any position that this is not, I don't know, constitutes Logan Act violations, FARA violations. We all know that Giuliani is in league with a company called Fraud Guarantee. I mean, how much more, I think of a scale. It's like Nancy Pelosi has everything and all these guys have nothing. They're like holding, you know, a bag of, as you say, isn't that word you use? <laughs> Shit. Yeah, I think for some of them, especially the ones who are still in the military, like Millie, yeah. who, you know, aren't political appointees, are, you know, probably just trying to get out of this with um, their reputations intact. And Millie's predecessor, the chairman, uh, General Dunford, mm-hmm. I think did. Um, mm. uh, but obviously, you know, it's nearly impossible to do so. I mean, you think they can get out with their reputations intact if just if they fly under the radar? I mean, and we don't really learn their names. Maybe that's why they keep their heads down. They're like they're like, you know, no pictures, no pictures because if I can hang in here for, you know, 6 months, then maybe I won't be associated with Trump because none none of these guys are acting especially heroically. Well, with Esper, it's interesting because on two fronts and what we're seeing now is two fronts is this Ukraine story going hand in hand with the uh, serious story. Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating to watch them happening at the same time because Republicans on the one hand are defending Trump to the hilt mm-hmm. on Ukraine mm-hmm. and yet are horrified by what's going on in Syria. Yeah. Why do you think? That's a really good question. I think his foreign policy decision mm-hmm. is actually not an impeachable offense because yes. it really is where the president has the most latitude to I think I saw Quinta say this, and do you ag- you agree, Quinta Jurassic? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably do because I agree with most. Of what <laughs> right, she yeah, yeah she, whatever she says. <laughs> but that, as much as we may disagree with foreign policy decisions, even if they seem to be piped in by the Kremlin, that those aren't themselves impeachable offenses. I don't know what an impeachable defense is. I yeah. Thought, I, uh, but but the, I do think that's interesting, and that 
we're not talking about, I don't know if you saw, but Lynn Cheney said Trump uh, allowed this invasion of Syria, the potential sparking of a kind of genocide of the Kurds, the potential sparking of the re-rise of ISIS, which we've seen a little evidence of already, because the Democrats moved to impeach. I mean, I'm thinking out loud here, but I think also with the Syria decision, it doesn't flirt with being criminal, whereas the Ukraine stuff does. Ah. It's not flirt, but... Ah, is maybe. But then also it could be an opportunity for the Republicans to say, see, we don't green, we don't green lights, not the right word, but we don't um, whitewash everything. We're actually criticizing him in mm-hmm. this corner. And I, I before I came in here, I think Mitch McConnell said that he plans to hold a vote in the Senate today mm-hmm. on the resolution to sort of condemn Trump and his Syria decision that's even harsher than what was passed in the House yesterday, which is really interesting that McConnell sort of you know, the Republicans, I think also they're moving as a pack on Syria. They've decided, all right, we're going to go for him on this. I mean, they're also at risk of abandoning. I think that they already have abandoned most of the platform of the Republican Party. Yes. But I think if they allow this to go uncriticized, you know, it's about being tough on terrorism. It's about being tough against Russia. It's about, you know, staying with your allies, supporting the military. All that's wrapped up in this. Yes. And if they go you know, it's fine, we're going to get his back on this. They really have just thrown up their hands and kind of given up on what the Republican Party is supposed to stand for. I think that's a great point. And it gets, even though Giuliani is involved, it gets the focus off the real carnies around Trump that nobody really like wants to dip into. And for a while, these, you know, the goons that Giuliani was involved with, their Fruman at least, isn't in the center. And Dimitri Furtash, the person, <laughs> person that you and I have, have studiously avoided knowing exactly anyway. But he's definitely Giuliani's side, Trump's side. But by talking about Turkey... I will also say that I just went to, do you ever go to Intelligence Square debates? They have these formal Oxford-style debates on subjects. Yeah, they're great, right? They're so good. But this one had um, a group of four, the most recent one about was about Middle Eastern foreign policy. Um, they talked about Turkey's role in NATO. And one of the figures on the, on the far right, I assume he's, I, I, I think he's on the far right, right to far right, said that he didn't want to talk about Khashoggi. He only wanted to talk in in Saudi Arabia. He only wanted to talk about the Kurds. The Kurds like pull at the heartstrings, or at least it they justify a hawkish foreign policy. I mean, we have to remember when Saddam Hussein used weapons of mass destruction. I'm doing air quotes on his own people. Those people were Kurds. Right. So if we're gonna tee up hawkish foreign policy in the Middle East, it's often done. To A, to defeat terrorism like ISIS, and B, to defend the Kurds. I mean, this is so central to uh, Republican and thinking about the Middle East on the right that, um, you know, I hadn't really given a lot of thought to this. I'm happy to say everything Trump does is bad, but I had to look pretty deeply into what the military was doing there and what what a withdrawal, what a what a a conscientious withdrawal might look like if it were ever justified. Um, And, you know, I think for now I've come around to the view that we needed to have those troops there. Brings us back to the letter. Yesterday, sort of the letter was released, but also Trump did two separate press availabilities, a press conference. And Trump said, you know, Turkey, Kurds, Syrians, there's a lot of sand that they can play with over there, basically. That's right. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Yes. And committing a crime, so I apologize. (laughs) 
treason. <laughs> and then he said, you know, the Kurds aren't angels, throwing them under the bus again, although he's already has literally. And then saying, you know, the PKK, which is this uh, Kurdish separatist movement in Turkey, yes. are basically as bad as ISIS. So all of these things that he's saying are, you know, flying in the face of what Republicans are saying on the Hill. Yeah. And at the same time, he... This uh, presidential delegation traveled to Turkey. They're meeting with uh, Erdogan this mm -hmm. morning. The mm -hmm. photo's already from that. But to deliver the exact opposite message, um, Pompeo and Pence went on this trip to basically plead with Erdogan to stop, to pull back, to not kill any more Kurds. Um, and then Kelly Kraft, who is our U.S. ambassador uh, to the U.N., Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> um, who's very much like Sondland, who's just a big political donor who got this job that she's not qualified for. She delivered this message at the UN that, I mean, Trump just is undermining not only the his party, but he's undermining his very own cabinet mm -hmm. um, on this on, you know, in one day. And it's just astonishing. And it was already the case, but it, but it was just hammered home yesterday. I mean, I if you were a foreign ally, or if you were a hostile nation, I mean, yeah. the US government, the Trump administration does not speak with one voice. Erdogan had said before Pence arrived, I don't want to meet with Pence, I only want to meet with the, tr the president. Mm. And he's got a point, because <laughs> what other people are saying to him at the end of the day, does not match what the president's saying. And so I, yeah. mean, I just don't, nobody knows what to make make of us. I mean, you're right to say that he's he's now crossed up his cabinet and his appointees. I mean, he's always quarreled with the Republicans in the Senate from McCain to McConnell. Remember when McConnell and Trump seemed like they were at odds with each other? That's another long time ago thing. But to just completely openly you know, say the opposite, do the opposite. Um, uh, and, and, you know, in plain view of all these foreign leaders yeah. who have us over a barrel in so many ways. Um, it, yeah. And, I mean, Pence and Pompeo, I saw a picture of them um, in Ankara today, you know, walking around. You know, they've just both got the rapture on their minds. Like, what are we doing? I mean, that's my main question for you. This this Pax Americana, we had um, we had my friend Asla Bali um, on the show really early on after the election. She's uh, Turkish-American, and she teaches at UCLA. And she just said, you know, our careers are now going to change now that the Pax Americana is over. That was the first thing she said after Trump's election. Does is that any is that a phrase you even use at um, Just Security? And is that I mean, was that a pipe dream always? The post-war world order being stabilized by the U.S. by things like these the troops that we that Trump just withdrew. I think the like so-called American era or yes. post-war, you know, yes. I, it started taking hits. I'm no, I'm no expert on this, but yeah. it started taking hits before Trump. Obviously, I think people pinpoint um, the decision to go into Iraq as, you know, yes. a, a major self-inflicted wound yes. that was going to be hard to recover from. And now Trump is exactly that. And, I, you know, it's why I think Trump is like into Brexit. It's these insane self-inflicted wounds. Yes. You were the leader of the free world. Yes. You chose not to be. Yes. And... I think everyone's looking to 2020. If Trump doesn't get reelected, there's a chance, I don't think, to restore what once was, but to, you know, maybe count, like, write it off as an anomaly. Yeah. But if he, you know, if he gets another four years, then... 
Yeah, that's not a phrase we use in this studio. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a particular counterfactual that we just don't. We're intellectually lazy that way. We don't think about another term. That's just, right. it's just, it's just um, yeah, it's just, it's not good for the, the system, the cortisol levels. You watched the debate the yeah. other Tuesday night. What did you think of Buttigieg's, uh, Mayor Pete's um, invocation of the day after Trump is president, whether that's in 2024, we don't talk about that, or when he resigns or is defeated or is indicted or whatever, that there will be this day after. And Buttigieg really made the point, we're going to have a lot of work to do. It's not like that's just a day to like send up balloons or launch a new revolution, as some of, in particular, Bernie Sanders to the left of Buttigieg is saying, that that's when we really need, we really need these, these repairs, this kind of remediation of all this damage. And I think for someone like Buttigieg, who is focused on foreign policy, that means in the region we've been talking about, we've got to realign with our allies and make it clear to our enemies that we're no longer their puppets. I think that allies will continue to be skeptical of the reliability of the United States, uh, yeah. even you know if Trump isn't reelected. Because after that president, who knows when Trump 2.0 shows up? And I think whether it's the climate accords, the Iran agreement, yeah. you know, how reliable is a U.S. commitment to a certain? Uh, cause. And then also what happens to the Republican Party? Yeah. I mean, if the Republican Party continues to embrace Trumpism, yeah. um, then, you know, I have no idea what happens to the Republican Party. But I think if both part political parties in this country mm -hmm. sort of embrace like basic standards like rule of law and mm -hmm. alliance building and things like that, then maybe foreign countries will feel better about things. But if you have this one party that is willing to burn the house down mm -hmm. on the world stage, then yeah. you're always at risk of having to do business with them. I think that was my concern about Biden is where it, my concern about people, uh, you know, with Sanders talking, using the word revolution, and then is the opposite of that is my concern that Biden will come in and his first meeting will not be in Saudi Arabia or Paris or Canada. It will be to go re-greet his buddies in the Senate, like Mitch McConnell, you know, and just say, we've been at this a long time and, you know, good to be working with you again. And I don't think that can happen here either, that there have to be consequences. And I mean, strategic organizational consequences, not like anybody... Um, you know, needs to go to prison or get down on their knees and beg forgiveness, but just more, I think I'm thinking about Buttigieg as a, and he's not necessarily my candidate, but I just like the order of his thinking. You know, he's a McKinsey guy. And so he thinks strategy and organization can save things. And I'm enough of a technocrat to kind of cotton to that, that rhetoric. I do think it also depends on how we get from point A to point B. I mean, we have no idea where this impeachment situation is going. I yeah. would be shocked if the Senate uh, removed Trump, and yeah. yet events are unfolding on an hourly basis here. And again, this Syria decision is putting so much pressure on them. Mm -hmm. It also shows, I mean, not only was Trump's green light to Erdogan, which it was, despite all the denials from his um, administration, yeah. was a bad decision for the United States, yeah. a bad decision for U.S. partners, but also a terrible political decision for Trump. Mm -hmm. At the moment when you're facing an impeachment crisis, yes. don't piss off your party with one of the worst foreign policy decisions. Um, and he did. And yeah. it either shows uh, that he's a horrible negotiator, which I think it does. I think he yes. caved to Erdogan's pressure. Yeah. Um, 
also I mean, also his his fondness for strong men. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't really know why Trump made this decision um, to well, ca- to cave and and withdraw U.S. troops. Well, you don't think it's what Zhirnovsky said that now we're going to get if Russia speaking for Russia. Now we're going to get Ukraine and Syria. It certainly could be because Trump and Russia is just still a giant open question. We have yes. no idea. We have no idea. Uh, why he acts the way he does. In do you think to just Occam's razor? Are you, are, or does it feel like going? You know, we don't want to sound like Louise Mensch, but <laughs> when Nancy Pelosi is saying all roads with you lead to Russia, do you think that it's time to really say what Hillary Clinton said in 2016? You know, Trump is Putin's puppet, and that is whatever our domestic politics, that needs to be taken into account. I mean, the, the, the cabinet needs to acknowledge that that's what's happening here. The, the Senate needs to acknowledge, Republicans in, the ha- in, the, in Congress need to acknowledge it. Um, and what would be our marching orders if that were the case? I think Trump is Putin's puppet. Yeah. We just don't know why, right? Yeah, yeah. But everyone should be operating... As if he is, because he because he acts like it. With, yeah, uh, he only I think doesn't when enough pressure is put on him by either Congress or forces within his administration. But those forces are either weaker or they're not existent anymore. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. even though like they didn't, you know, there are a million reasons to criticize them. But people like Mattis and John Kelly, I do think were at least doing a better job than the current crew mm-hmm. of. Um, not enabling him, keeping misinformation away from him. Mm-hmm. Not completely, but, I mean, I think we're looking at what it looks like when Trump is unleashed. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, what I also wonder about, and this calls for speculation, as they say in the courtroom, but um, is if, okay, so Trump gets the Mueller report and then he turns to Ukraine. So the the most... Um, alarmist reading of that is that the Mueller report and particularly Barr's framing of it and spin of it um, and misrepresentation of it gave the signal to Trump that he could keep criming or at least, right? So it was like, you're going to get away with this astounding set of things that you did to obstruct justice, but also to enable, to accept help from from the Russians to cross lines we've never seen crossed before in tampering with an election. Um, and, you know, he decided that meant no obstruction, no collusion. It just once again, I get away with this. I'm above the law. And just, what, days later, he's on the phone to Zelensky asking him to, in July, asking him to interfere with 2020. Just, I'm going to do this again. That's totally true. The message that that has sent is there are no consequences to your behavior. You are above the law, as your lawyers are arguing. But I do think Ukraine activities go back further than the conclusion of the Mueller report Mm -hmm. in that I don't think... I think Trump was sort of full speed ahead regardless. Yeah. As I was reading mm. Sondland's uh, opening statement today, he yeah. talks about how in April 2019, um, Petroshenko, is that uh, yes. how you say his name? He lost the election to Zelensky, and that's when Zelensky became the president. And Zelensky had run on a reform platform, and it occurred to me that maybe that was a really pivotal moment. Maybe Petroshenko was their guy. Yeah. And um, Zelensky's win sort of threw their plan up in the air. And all of a sudden they had somebody who was less vulnerable to corruption because this whole platform was 
anti-corruption. Yes, we've had we had Molly McHugh on who who knows about Ukrainian politics, and she was saying that actually Zelensky, for all he's a comedian and in some ways looks like a Trump-like carny, you know, yeah. with a TV uh, career, he he's actually like pushed through various reforms very quickly when he got there, um, and um, and this prosecutor that. Like that Trump, of course, has completely inverted. The prosecutor was actually being quite tough on corruption, the Mm -hmm. corruption that they actually worry about in Ukraine. But Trump styled this prosecutor as as weak on corruption because to him, Biden is the, you know, is the is the centerpiece of, well, Biden's just his bete noir. Yeah. Um, So so that I think is interesting. Right. As you say, to keep in mind that Ukrainian politics obviously were in their own even more than usual state of disarray or change. Right. And you can tell that this crew, even even Sondland and Volker and Perry, who appear to have done things, you know, pushing pushing some of these things that they shouldn't have been. If Sondland is to believe, sort of be believed at, at some level on face value in what he's saying, they met Zelensky and they were like, he seems good. Like, yeah. he supports general U.S. policy toward Ukraine, like rule of law, yeah. anti-corruption. And so we really think Trump and uh, him should, like, get together. Mm. And it's Trump and Giuliani who are like, let's, I don't know. He seems to be surrounded by bad people. Yeah. And uh, Jovanovich, too, I'm sure, was, uh, you know, pushing a very straightforward, basic, traditional U.S. policy. And yeah. they were like, no, that's not what we're here for. Yeah. We want yeah. to do shady stuff. Um, and so you get, so Volker and Sondland and Perry are kind of like, come on, like, get, let's get these two guys in the room. We like this guy, Zelensky. Yeah. And they're getting this pushback from, um, Giuliani, who's essentially speaking for Trump, like Mm -hmm. holding him at bay and wanting him to make these promises, um, to do Trump's, uh, requests, which Mm -hmm. are investigate Biden and get deep in the weeds on a, 2016 conspiracy theory about mm-hmm. that the Russian investigation was a hoax set up by Ukraine and um, that, that that's sort of the back and forth and um, I didn't quite get that dynamic fully until I was reading this today. That's definitely a, an interesting twist and I should admit I have to now study that statement because it came in just as yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. right before you got here. We learned also yesterday that McConnell is saying buckle in to the Senate and be ready for impeachment and now I can't remember where this is from but there's been talk of it going quite quickly now um, that we may see the Senate called for, you know, we may see a trial in the Senate. We may see articles of impeachment filed even this as early as this month and that something will happen that in November we may see that that real trial um, and a vote in the Senate. Um, what do you think? I mean, I don't know. Do you make some make some predictions for me. Help me. Oh, my goodness. I also saw yesterday John Yu, who's the former lawyer in the Bush administration who wrote the torture memos. He was on Fox News yesterday saying, you know, impeachment's not allowed to happen so close to an election. That's against the framers' um, Mm. vision, which sounds a lot like Merrick Garland. You you can't have a... You can't do anything if you're within three years of an election. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So maybe McConnell's thinking is partly that. This has to happen sooner rather than later. Like, Mm -hmm. we can't let this be part of the election cycle. Yeah. I think, though, that the House... I mean, they're doing depositions every day, but every deposition is critical. I mean, enormous amounts of information, I feel like, are coming out with each one. And I know with each one, they're getting new names. I mean, even in the Sondland opening statement, I was like, huh, that's a name. He's putting people in the room Mm -hmm. for some of these moments that I haven't heard before. And so obviously, that person now has to come in and testify. Yes. Um, 
And Bill Taylor um, of the Don't Text Me, Call Me. Yes. Or I Would Like to Text You. Yes. <laughs> fame. Um, I believe he's scheduled for next week. And so that's really critical. Yes. So McConnell's kind of putting a, I think he's kind of putting the pressure on the House when the House is still developing their case. My guest today has been Kate Brannon. She's the editorial director of Just Security, also a senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. Thanks so much for being in the studio with me, Kate. Thank you. That's our show for today. What'd you think? Join us on Twitter and let's reflect on this mad, mad world together. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And hey, if you're still here, you're committed to Trumpcast. So why not go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and become a Slate Plus member if you're not already. There's no day like today. And then you'll miss none of the Trumpcast episodes, even the ones exclusive to Slate Plus members. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.